This is Saving Grace, Living in Light of God's Love, a podcast ministry brought to you by Grace School of Theology, a seminary to the world committed to the truth of Scripture and life application through the lens of grace. I'm Carmen Pate, your host for today's podcast. So glad you could join us. You know, over the next several weeks, we hope you'll capture the potential power and joy of a Christian life of glory. You know, the Bible talks a lot about the glory of God and how we as Christians are to bring God glory in our lives. But what is God's glory? How do we make sure that others see God's glory in us? And how can we express his glory to the fullest? Well, today we'll hear from Mark Ray how the glory of God reveals our purpose for being and brings new meaning to the oft-repeated phrase, glory be. Mark is vice president of community development here at Grace and has a substantial history with Grace School of Theology, including being an original board of trustee member and a primary advisor from the earliest days. Mark holds a Master of Biblical Studies from Dallas Theological Seminary, a Master of Divinity from Grace School of Theology. He served churches as an associate pastor and as a lead pastor, and has served as COO of a major evangelistic ministry. Mark will soon be launching the Grace Center for Spiritual Development, which we will tell you more about in the weeks to come. But let's listen now to Mark Ray as he begins our series on A Life of Glory. In the Massachusetts Bar Association Lawyer's Journal, the following are a list of questions that were actually asked of witnesses by attorneys during trials. These are actual questions by actual attorneys to actual witnesses in actual trials that were recorded in the Massachusetts Bar Association Lawyer's Journal. Here's the first one. The youngest son, the 20-year-old, how old is he? Just let that one sink in for a moment. Were you present when your picture was taken? How far apart were the vehicles at the time of the collision? Just think about that for a moment. Here's a question and answer he asked of a witness. Question, you say the stairs went down to the basement. The answer, yes. And those same stairs, did they also go up? Question, doctor, how many autopsies have you performed on dead people? The answer, all of them. One of my favorites. Were you shot in the fracas? No, I was shot midway between the fracas and the navel. And now my favorite. Doctor, before you performed the autopsy, did you check for a pulse? The answer, no. Did you check for blood pressure? No. Did you check for breathing? No. So then is it possible that the patient was alive when you began the autopsy? The answer, no. Well, doctor, how can you be so sure? Because his brain was sitting in a jar on my desk. But the lawyer's not finished. But could the patient still have been alive nevertheless? 
And the doctor's answer, it's possible he could have been alive and practicing law somewhere. <laughs> when I hear those, I ask myself the question, what were these guys doing practicing law? What were they, what were they thinking? What were they doing? Is this really the profession they should have been in? You ever wonder that? What are you doing? Are you doing what you're supposed to be doing? What's, what's your purpose here? What's my purpose here? Does that ever strike you? Is that a question that ever strikes you? What's my purpose? Why am I here? This from Max Lucado. He says this, Mine deep enough in every heart, and you'll find it. A longing for meaning. A quest for purpose. As surely as a child breathes, he will someday wonder, What is the purpose of my life? Some search for meaning in a career. My purpose is to be a dentist. Well, that's a fine vocation, but hardly a justification for existence. They opt to be human doings rather than human beings. Who they are is what they do, and consequently, they do a lot. They work many hours because if they don't work, they don't have an identity. For others, who they are is what they have. They find meaning in a new car, a new house, and new clothes. These people are great for the economy and rough on the budget because they're always seeking meaning in what they own. Some try sports, entertainment, sex, cults, you name it. All mirages in the desert of purpose. Well, shouldn't we face the truth? If we don't acknowledge God, we are just flotsam in the universe. What's my purpose? If it doesn't involve God then is there purpose at all? The Westminster Shorter Catechism says this, man's chief end, man's purpose, man's goal is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, Therefore, whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. What's my purpose? Whether you're a believer or a non-believer, whether you're an agnostic or an atheist, our purpose here is to glorify God, period. Now, there are other purposes out there. There are other things that we do out there. But the overarching umbrella purpose over all of us is this. It is to glorify God. Take out your Strong's Concordance, that big hunker book that weighs about 240 pounds, and look up the word glory. Look up glorify. Look up that word over and over again, and you'll see almost 300 verses, Old and New Testament, that tell us to glorify God, give glory to God. The Bible is full of glory, glory this and glory that, but it all revolves around glorifying the God of the universe. So what's my purpose to glorify God? Well, if that's my purpose, shouldn't I figure out what that means? We're going to look this morning at this foundational principle to the spiritual life. And we're going to look first at a definition of what it means to glorify God. Out of that, we're going to look at the divine attributes of God. Why is he worthy of that glorifying? From there, we're going to look very specifically at the design of you and me to glorify him. And then we're going to look at the demand in this world for glorifying God. That's where we're going in the spiritual life this morning, this foundational piece to glorify God. So what does it mean to glorify God. What is it to glorify God? What's the definition of that? Well, 
The definition for the word glory comes from two words. The first word is a Greek word in the New Testament, doxa. The, New Testament, doxa. the second is an Old Testament word, and it's a Hebrew word. This Hebrew word is kabod, and that Hebrew word literally means to be heavy. That's kind of an interesting statement, to be heavy. That's what the word literally translated means, but if you use it figuratively, it means this, to consider something because of its weightiness, to consider something because of its weight. Now, what we're not talking about here is that God weighs an incredible amount. What we are talking about here is that because of his Meaning because of his significance, because of who he is, he is a weighty person and therefore is to be considered because of his weightiness. So we give honor and we give respect to him because of his weightiness. Does that make sense? If you use it theologically, what it says is this, God is the most significant, the most significant person in the world. And because he's the most significant person in the world... He earns, he has my respect. He has my worthy, my worth, my honor. He has my honor and my respect because of his weightiness, because he is the most significant person in the world. Now, it's not that God needs my respect and honor, but just by virtue of who he is, by virtue of his weightiness, by virtue of his significance, he deserves my honor, my respect. So what is that? That's significance. Well, listen to a couple of verses that extol this. First from Psalm 19, verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. This is a great verse for us in West Texas, don't you think? When you go out at night and you're here in the desert and you can see nothing but the sky and the stars, or you see a beautiful sunrise or a beautiful sunset, what you see is the heavens declaring the significance of God. What you see is the firmament showing off the handiwork of God in the creation of all that we see, the expanse that we see. And so we get the vastness of the glory of God. We get the vastness of his significance, the creator of it all. And so the heavens themselves declare by just their existence, they declare the significance of the God of the universe. Because it's his handiwork on display. The significance of God is on display in his creation, in his universe. Habakkuk 2.14 says this, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. You've been to the beach before? When you've been to the beach, you see the expanse of the ocean, right? You see how incredibly vast the ocean is. And what this verse declares is that the vastness of God, the significance of God, the knowledge of his significance is so vast, it's as grand as the oceans. The significance of God. Unger's Bible Dictionary defines God's glory this way. The manifestation of his divine attributes and perfections. So God's glory then is the presentation or the revelation or the manifestation of the significance of God in his creation, right? And so the first statement that we make is this. God's glory is the presentation or the revelation of the significance of God, that he is the most significant person in the universe, the significance of God. So what is it that makes him so significant? 
What are the divine attributes? What are the attributes of God that makes him so significant? Well, I want to give you two. There's several, but these are, these are the two biggies. The first one is called his nature. The second one is called his character. The first one, his nature, we call these the incommunicable attributes of God. In other words, these are attributes that don't communicate from him to us from us to each other. They cannot communicate. They don't transfer. And here's what I mean by that. These are called the omnis. You know the omnis, right? Omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent. Let's talk about those and and uncap those just a minute. His omniscience, which means he is all-knowing, right? He is all-knowing. Well, here's what all-knowing looks like. God knows everything in the past, right? He knows everything in the present. He knows everything in the future. But the amazing thing about God is he knows everything in the past that affects everything in the present. He knows everything in the present that affects everything in the future. He knows everything in the past that affects everything in the future. God also knows everything in the past and every possibility of everything in the past that affects everything in the present. He knows every possibility in the present that affects everything in the future, and everything, every possibility in the past that affects everything in the future. But he also knows every possibility in the, fa- in the past that affects every possibility in the present. He knows every possibility in the present that affects every possibility in the future, and every possibility in the past that affects every possibility in the future. He knows everything, right? It's amazing. So he is omniscient. An incommunicable attribute of God is that he knows it all. But second, he is also omnipresent. Omnipresent, let me unpack that one a little bit. Omnipresent means from everything from the smallest microscopic particle to the farthest telescope that we can see, God is beyond that on both sides. God is, he he is omnipresent and not only is he in the smallest and the largest, but he is above Time and space and all of that. I can't wrap my arms around that. I have a really hard time wrapping my arms around above time and space, but that's where God is and that's where he exists. Not only in time and space, but above time and space and in the smallest to the farthest to the largest. So he is omnipresent, but he's also omnipotent. And this one, (laughs) I had the seminary professor who taught this course said, let me give you just a little bit of a handle on this and I still can't get a handle on it, but he said this. Think back to the, to the Christmas story. And think back to Jesus in the manger. The one through whom, for whom, and by whom all, thing are, all things are created, right? Through whom, for whom, and by whom all things are created. When he was a baby in the manger as God, he was still sustaining the earth. So he's omniscient. He's omnipotent. He's omnipresent, and I had a buddy who said he's got one, one final omni, and that's he's omnipersonal. Omnipersonal means he can be intimate with you, and 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 with me all at the same time. So those attributes, the nature of God does not translate to you and me, but there's a second side of his attributes, and that's his character. And his character does translate. These are called the communicable attributes of God because they do translate to you and me. Name some character traits. We've, I'll get you started. Love, joy, peace, 
You, yeah, you could, name, you could name the fruits of the Spirit, justice, mercy. These are the character traits of God, and they are communicable because each one of us has experienced love, right? We've experienced joy. We've experienced mercy. We've experienced grace. And because of those, these are the character traits of God that are communicated to us, that are communicated from us to others. The major difference between us and God in this, in the character traits are this, that he exhibits all the character traits perfectly at the same time. I, however, have trouble communicating one kind of halfway. But that's who God is. So by his nature and by his character, his attributes show him to be significant. Does that make sense? He is significant because of his nature, because of the omnis, the incommunicable, but he's also significant because of his character, the communicable traits that are, have been translated and communicated to you and to me. I have a good friend, and I'll put it this way, he was a good friend because he's now gone to be with the Lord, but this guy, this guy's name was Paul Barrett. Paul Barrett was an Englishman, and I mean an, an upfront Englishman. He was proper in every word. And interestingly enough, this Englishman went to Texas A&M and got his veterinary degree. Now imagine an Englishman at Texas A&M getting his veterinary degree. He was in the woodlands for a number of years and one of the greatest vets that was around. And he contracted Lou Gehrig's disease. I had the privilege of wheelchairing him down the Via Dolorosa while I was in Israel. It was one of the most incredible experiences I had, and to sit with him in the Garden of Gethsemane, this guy whose body was wasting away, but knew at some point in time he was going to be face-to-face with the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul Barrett also had this British sense of humor, and he wrote this describing glorifying God. This is in an article he wrote on Confessions of a Soccer-holic. He says, I clearly remember watching the 1970 World Cup final. The poor Italian team was led like a lamb to the slaughter against the peerless Brazilian team. And after the game, feeling powerfully inspired, some friends and I played soccer barefoot outside in the grass. I, of course, was Pele, naturally the best soccer player on the planet. My other friends were part of the Brazilian team, that glorious 1970 Brazilian team, and no one wanted to be an Italian on that sunny afternoon. The spirit of Pele was mightily upon me. In a 12-year-old Walter Mitty-esque kind of way, I was unstoppable, my enemies melting before me like wax. The game came to an abrupt halt when I stepped on a bumblebee. (laughs) However, I had briefly gotten a taste of what it was like to be the greatest soccer player who ever lived. That's a close approximation to the biblical definition of what it is to glorify someone. To glorify Pele is to outwardly manifest the attributes of Pele. God's glory is the presentation or the uh, the revelation of his significance. And that significance of God is seen in his unique nature and character. So, the glory of God is the visible expression of the character of God. The visible expression of the character of God. And for me to glorify God would be to act like Jesus. Why? Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I and the Father are one. He came here in human form to give us the example of who the Father was so that we could glorify, express the character of God. 
So how are we designed? If that's what our purpose is, if that's what our role is, how are we designed then to be able to carry out this glorifying God? Well, if you look at Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28, then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. What we have here is we have this dominion. We have this, this, this image that God said, the Trinity said, let us create man in our image, this image bearer. He continues and says, so God created man in his own image, in the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. What he literally did is he created little images of himself. Not that we look like him, but the character of him, the essence of him infused into each one of us. What he did was he created little images so we could be the image bearers. He designed us specifically to carry his character, to carry his image, and to take it forward into the world. Now, did he have to do that? No. Did he need to do that? No. You saw the magnificence of God, right? But the most significant thing of his creation, guess what it is? You and me. The most significant of all of his creations is you and me. And he designed us specifically to be the image bearers, to be the character transference of God himself. And so we get this out of Genesis 1, 26 through 28. We get this that we're created in his image out of Ephesians 2, verse 10. Ephesians 2, verse 10, what we get is, for you were created, you are his workmanship created in his image, right? For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared before and that we should walk in them. Not only did he create us in his image, but he also created the works for us to do, that we should walk in what he's designed for us to do. The continuation of that in Genesis 1.26, we're regents of his created order. In Genesis 2.15 and 18, we have the authority to act over this. We were to be his image bearers under the world. Let me give you an example of this. When I was 12 years old, a long, long time ago, I did my first opportunity to work. And it was to go to work at my dad's company. Twelve years old, I went to work at my dad's company. And the first day I walked in, I absolutely hated my first day of work. And I hated it for this reason. Because at 12 years old, I walked in and every single person that knew my dad walked up to me and pinched me on the cheek and said, you look just like your dad. And I hated every... You've been there, right? You look just like your dad. I hated every minute of that. So for an entire summer, what I got was, you're so cute, you look just like your dad. And I wanted to go throw up. Well, that continued on as I worked every summer. And then I started working full time during the summers while I was in college. Through high school and in college, I worked summers. And being the boss's kid, there were a lot of people there that wanted to make sure they were telling me that they knew that I was below them. So I did every bad job you could possibly find. I mean, I, I, this was a printing company, so I handled some of the worst chemicals. I handled some horrible stuff. And I did some of the worst jobs, and I always got the worst shifts as well. I got the shifts that came at night. I got the overtime shifts. Made some pretty good money, but got some overtime shifts. And there, even in that, I was a reflection of, because I was the son, I was, I was a reflection of the boss. When I graduated college, I went to work for him full time. And when I went to work for him, I can remember showing up in my 
coat and tie going out and beginning to learn sales and marketing of this printing company. And I remember people coming up as I would go out and I'd meet customers of his that he had had before. And they would look at me and they'd say, oh, oh, that's a gesture. That, that looks just like Bud. Oh, that, that's Bud's laugh. You sound just like him. Oh, oh, you look just like him. That's the way he smiled. Oh, that's a gesture that he would make. And what I came to find out was this. What they were literally saying to me was, I see your dad in you. I see your father. When I look at you, I see your father. What we find here is this. We were designed to house the character of God. Those character traits, the little image bearers of God, that's what we were designed to do, to glorify him by putting God's character on display so that when people look at us, they say, I see the Father in you. And the amazing thing about this is he put his own son here in human form so that we could get an absolute beautiful picture of the character of God in his son, Jesus Christ. And he went even further than that by putting his spirit inside of us so that we could be molded and shaped into the image of Jesus Christ so that we could be better image bearers of the character of God. Isn't that an amazing God? He did everything he possibly could to give us whatever it is that we need in order to fulfill our purpose of glorifying him, his character. His glory is on display in his best creation, you and me. You're an image bearer of the God of the universe. The reason why, we've defined it now, we've looked at his attributes, his divine attributes, and we've talked about how we've been designed for this, but there's one final thing we need to do, and that's the demand for God's glory in the universe, why this demand is here, and what our role is in that. First of all, our role in God's glory is this. There is a role in God's glory that's salvation-geared. And it's salvation-geared because of this. I came to know Jesus Christ because my brother was an image-bearer of Jesus Christ to me. He came, and he shared his love with me. He shared his grace with me. He shared the story of Jesus Christ with me. He prayed with me. He showed me, as an image bearer of Jesus Christ, he showed me Christ. Salvation says the reason for that character in me, the reason for that communicable trait in me is so that as I am an image bearer for Christ to other people, as I as God's image bearer, other people see the Father in me and they're attracted to it. They see Jesus Christ in me, and they're attracted to it, and they want to know more. So salvation is necessary because for God to get his character out there, for other people to see it and be attracted to it, they see it in me. And when they see it in me, the opportunity is there through me to be able to see who Christ is and come to know him. And I get the privilege of participating in being the image bearer of Jesus Christ so that other people might come to know him and know him fully for eternity. I'll say it again. God didn't have to use me. But he wanted to. He desired to. And so he designed me to bear his image so that other people might see him in me and come to know his son, Jesus Christ. So for salvation, you can see God's glory is essential. It's also essential in the sanctification part. As we become more like Christ, this is that whole process of, as Paul says in in Philippians 2, he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. 
work out this process of becoming more like Jesus Christ because as you become more like Jesus Christ, molded and shaped into the character of God as seen in him, we can more fully manifest his glory to the world, more fully manifest the character of God to the world. And the more fully we, that we express that character, the more people come to know him, the more we become closer to Jesus, the more we become like him. You see the process that's going on here? Glorification is the best one because in glorification, he actually perfects his character in us for all eternity. So the process, our role in this thing has a salvation role, it has a sanctification role, and it has a glorification role. So he's designed us specifically to have his glory in us, to have his character in us, and to project that to the world so the world will see him. Not just in the majesty of what he has, as it says in Romans, that he's made himself manifest in his creation, but guess where else? In his creation of you and me, he's made himself manifest so that we are in Christ. John Calvin said it, the purpose of the Christian is to make the invisible kingdom visible. Isn't that great? We make the invisible kingdom visible. So the purpose of my life, 1 Corinthians 10, 31, to glorify God or to manifest the character of God to the world, to manifest his character to the world. So whether you eat or you drink, even in the little things, whether you eat or you drink, whatever you do, do it in such a way that you manifest his character to the world in such a way that you express the character of God to the world, which is why it's so important to come to know Jesus because the closer you get to him, the more you're molded and shaped into that perfect character of God. And that's how I fulfill it. In all that I do, I display the character of God. A.W. Tozer said this, God is looking for people in whose hands his glory is safe. Is his glory safe in my hands? Is his character safe in my hands? Is his character safe in your hands? Tony Campolo tells the story of a guy named Joe. Joe was a guy who showed up at the Bowery Street Mission, and Joe was a mess. Joe was this guy who, who came in and he was drunk. He came in and he was dirty. He came in and he was filthy. And he was a mess. He was the guy that was known most of all as the guy who needed the most help of anybody there. And then one day, Joe trusted Christ. And the people at the Bowery Street Mission said he changed overnight, transformed into a new creature, transformed into this new creation. And from that point on, Joe showed up all the time at the Bowery Street Mission, and he did any work that anybody needed with a smile, with gratitude on his face. He was this incredible guy who went and did the things nobody else would do. When a drunk would come in and empty the contents of his stomach all over the floor, Joe went and cleaned it up. He fed guys in, in the food line. He changed the sheets on beds. When guys would come in and they were so drunk that they couldn't get their clothes off and get into bed, Joe would, would help them with that and tuck them in at night. And the director of the mission one night was standing up giving his evangelistic message. And this guy comes running down the front and he's screaming at the top of his lungs, Oh God, make me like Joe! Make me like Joe! Make me like Joe! And the director leans over and says, Son, I think you ought to say, God, make me like Jesus. And he looked at him and he said, Is Jesus anything like Joe? Friends, what we have is the ability. We have been designed. We have the privilege of being Jesus Christ to the world. We've been designed to glorify God 
by expressing his character. Whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. You have been listening to Mark Ray. It's always our prayer that our topics will stir your interest to get into God's Word and to grow in your knowledge and love for our Savior, Jesus Christ. Also, if you haven't done so, we encourage you to check out the many courses at minimal or no cost to you offered through Grace School of Theology. Find these and devotionals on our website at gsot.edu. All are meant to expand your biblical knowledge, deepen your faith, and to apply your newly gained knowledge to your daily lives. Now, you may have some friends and family who need to hear about God's amazing grace. Sharing our podcast is a perfect way to start that conversation. We're so glad you tuned in today. And remember, the love of Christ can never be earned and can never be lost. This is Saving Grace living in light of God's love, a podcast ministry brought to you by Grace School of Theology, a seminary to the world committed to the truth of scripture and life application through the lens of grace.